Hello, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for listening to the Equity Meets podcast series by Equity Labs at the University of Denver. My name is Chendu Jayton, and I am the executive director of Equity Labs here at the University of Denver. Our show is committed to interrogating contemporary issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion across disciplines, industries, and contexts by leaning on the expertise of interdisciplinary thought leaders and elevating the voices of those who live in the margins. Today, we are diving into the world of athletics and the role athletes and their respective organizations play when amplifying inequities. Our conversation will consider the world of athletics and its ability to truly be fair and equitable to everyone. What better place to start than a conversation with a Paralympian? Our goal at the end of each episode is that you walk away with a better understanding of contemporary issues, some skills and strategies that aid you in your equity and justice journey, and a sense of belonging in a community of people who are in this together. Our guest today is U.S. Paralympian, advocate, speaker, model, and performance psychology professional, Lacey Henderson. Lacey was diagnosed with synovial sarcoma at the age of nine that resulted in the amputation of her right leg. Despite her disability, she pursued sports cheerleading in high school and college. After a Division I athletic scholarship for cheerleading, Lacey discovered the world of disability. Only until she started Paralympic track and field did she realize she had been not only avoiding her disability, but a huge part of herself. It was a long journey of therapy, finding resilience, and a lot of time training on the track. She became an American record holder and a Rio 2016 Paralympian. She works now as a disability advocate, having conversations that normalize being and feeling different and how it is our differences that truly unite us. She is graduating this December with a master's in applied sport and performance psychology with the hopes to serve all athletes, but with special attention to disabled athletes. She's the host of her own podcast, Picked Last in Gym Class. We invite all of you to take a listen. Welcome to Equity Meets, Lazy, and we are incredibly honored to have you today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and talk about stuff that's that's interesting, at least to me. So perfect, perfect. Um, so let's um, uh, dive in. Now you are a Paralympian. You occupy a really complex position, right? So you're perceived by others as someone who holds a privileged position as an elite athlete within a community that experiences disabling effects um, from society. So how do you reconcile those positions? Or is this something that needs to be reconciled at all? Um, For me, it's like so funny because I think so many people just exist like as dichotomies, right? Like we're all, we're just all walking contradictions all the time. And uh, I think for me, as far as like reconciling these two almost like a seemingly opposites from each other, it, it took time for me. I think now I'm able to like accept and grow and like live and learn the fact that I can be a person, a disabled person, a person with a disability and an elite athlete. Um, when I was younger, I grew up playing sports. Um, I had an athletic scholarship, even though I was an amputee. And of course, like when I first started 
in my Paralympic journey, so much of it was about being the elite athlete, you know, and like kind of, it's weird because in the world of Paralympics too, there's like such a spectrum, which I know I will be, I'm sure talking about later, but, um, for a while I wanted my only focus to be on who I was as an athlete, like what I could do with my abilities. But I started running into probably like more mental health issues by abandoning the idea of who I was as a person with a disability, like as somebody who embraced my disability because our society, I mean, most societies in the world, let's be real, Mm -hmm. but like I'm an American person. So that's like what I'm most used to. We paint disability as either a tragedy. Um, We love a disabled story of like somebody. And of course, athletes are bad examples or the perfect examples, depending on your opinion. We paint the hero story of disability. So somebody who goes through something and then overcomes it, climbs a mountain, becomes an elite athlete, whatever. Or we use it as a story to force ourselves to be thankful for our situation because theirs is worse than mine because somebody's could be worse than mine. And so there's a term called internalized ableism, which I think a lot of people experience um, because disability is also really broad, but I like to call it my disability denial phase. So I used to say, I'm not disabled. I just have one leg, which like was a funny haha thing. But I think like that was really something that I thought like, I think so often in our society as well, like we paint people with differences as different from us. And so even though I was a disabled person, I was like, I'm not that disabled person. Like, that's not me. I can still do things. I'm, I'm normal, whatever that means. You know, I still felt like I was a contributing member of my society. And like what we hear about disability in broad terms is like, those people can't contribute the same way. They can't do things. So I was like, well, that's not me then clearly. Um, and it took me a really, really long time. And it was actually ironically, man, I haven't thought about this. It's so funny. It was ironically when I was training at an elite, um, training camp in Phoenix, we were a mix of Olympic athletes and Paralympic athletes. At first it was Olympic athletes. And I was my personality. I was like, are you interested in working with Paralympic athletes? They were like, no. And I was like, okay, so by now I just need to work on you a little bit more. (laughs) So Mm. I got into this training group. I was working with world renowned coaches. And like, that was when those people were like, I think I like had hurt my stake. I just had an injury. Like it just kind of comes with being an athlete. And my coaches were like, well, you need to be off your legs. I'm like, how? I only have one, you know, haha. And they're like, well, why don't you have crutches at home? And I'm like, I don't need them. He's like, yes, you do. (laughs) Of course you do. So I, it took somebody from like the highest level of sports to be like, you need to embrace all the aspects of yourself. And that Mm. kind of took me on a different level journey than I what I thought I was prepared for at the time. And I was working with a sports psychologist and it, it really was an interesting way and journey that I had to like blend the two together that, that we can all exist and take up space while having these like seemingly opposite parts of ourselves. And I think it's so easy to think that somebody different from us is a simple version. Like they just have like one aspect to them, but I'm diverse. I'm really complicated. I can have all these things all at once. And um, you know, maybe also with age, you know, your brain develops a little bit, you're, you're still kind of working out, working yeah. out some things in your twenties <laughs> in your brain that I was finally able to embrace that disability is a huge part of my life. You know, it's not the driver, but it's a big variable, but at the same time I can do pretty amazing things with my body and I can achieve a pretty high level athletic achievements, mm-hmm. um, and that they can exist together and that, yeah. that like they, they don't need to compete. Yeah, 
and you know there are some parallels in that right because uh, too often even if we're looking at kind of other forms of marginalization that there are these occasions where we hold up the extraordinary black man or the yeah. extraordinary queer woman and say look if they can do it then everybody can yeah. right so and i feel like there's a there's a parallel in the disability community where it, you tend to kind of flatten the experience of the entire disabled community because uh, extraordinary abilities are possible within the disability community as well the way the human brain works is that we like broad classifications we like to just put everybody in a box and say yeah, there you go easy. It's, it's easy it's simple. exactly it's organized we love an organized yeah community. yeah indeed uh thank you very much for that um so now you are an elite athlete but you're also an advocate right like the stories that you uh, are telling us right now point to that need for change in how we relate to the disabled community uh, and in your own podcast you've had some pretty potent conversations that uh, that I think I think by nature is designed to make people feel uncomfortable um, tell us a little bit about that how did you arrive at that point where you said okay I have some things to say and I need the world to listen how did you arrive at that point oh man I I'm actually still like trying to figure out how I had it. No, I mean, I agree totally. I think like the disabled hero thing that like we were mm -hmm. speaking about previously, it still is another version of creating another. Yeah. It's still an othering of a person. Like there's people that are disabled that just want to pay their bills and live normal human lives. Like, mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But you know, the expectation is that it still needs to be something very different from my lived experience and so the podcast like the goal of the podcast was to basically have people share their stories of struggles before success and like see the parallels how everybody has had their thing whatever that thing may be um but actually getting there when i was thinking about it i was thinking about how i had I had like just competed from Rio I had been like it was like I became a Paralympian I had broken a US record so I was like I'm gonna get an agent now so um the world of like sports agents and like I mean now that we see like with Instagram TikTok like the way that people athletes make money now is just like constantly evolving and like has mm -hmm. to be fluid especially if you're not like one of the big NFL NBA like if you're not a big money making sport athlete because most of those agents are like just specific for those sports they place you on teams or like even a track agent pretty much places you in a circuit but for para it's different i'll talk about that later but i was like i need to make money like i need to i've done a lot of cool things and like i, I should probably try to make money on this i'm turning 30 soon so i um had gotten in touch with this agent it was more of like kind of like a speaking agent and it was just a weird dynamic to, to begin with. And I was like, maybe I just need to like learn something from these people. They're clearly like they've had, they've had success. Like some of their like big agent guys are making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. That would be nice. Like mm -hmm. that would be lovely. Yeah. I could, you know, maybe pay my rent comfortably. Um, so the conversations were kind of weird. I would hear things in the background. It was primarily, and there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with this, but it was primarily like, um, 
a bunch of white guys. Like, it was just, like, yeah. a bunch of young white guys that were doing these, like, speaking circuits. And it was primarily at schools. And um, they basically were like, we need women. Like, they were doing a lot of leadership programs with high school kids. And they were like, the demographic that they normally work with tend to be a lot of girls in these leadership classes. So we need a girl. Like, so I was like, I guess I'm me and one other gal, like, became, like, the token girls. And um, I had spoken about my Rio experience, but my Rio experience was also like really complex and like becoming an elite athlete. It's kind of like deciding to run a small business. Like you need everybody in your family. You have a support system, like your community. There's a reason why the cliche, it takes a village is a cliche because like it takes a whole village to, to become, to make it to that level. Yeah. And I was like, I remember I did like one speaking event. And I talked about my parents divorcing and the agent afterwards was like, definitely never do that again. And I'm like, mm. what? <laughs> like, what? What in tarnation? Because kids experience your parents divorcing. Like, this is something very common right. that ha that affects a lot of people across a lot of different boards. And then something had happened. I will never forget it. I'm kind of like a little stinky weenie, though, too. If somebody pushes me one way, I, I will fight back. And sometimes it's passive aggressive and sometimes it's aggressive aggressive, mm -hmm. <laughs> depending on the context. So... I think it was 2017 and there was a bunch of stuff coming out with the Larry Nassar case Yeah, and clearly objectively very ugly, terrible things. And I had written something on Twitter. You guys will probably have to edit this out because it includes the F word, the famous no, F word. We're oh. all about that. Oh, okay. Go well, for it. Guess what? <laughs> okay. Well, there was something on Twitter, you know how Twitter goes. And there, you know, the response, some of the responses of people's um, reactions to the sentencing of Larry Nasser, saying that the judge was being too mean, too harsh to him. And so I went on Twitter one day. I was feeling some type of way. And I was like, if you think that the sentencing or that the judge's like reaction to Larry Nasser's sentencing was too harsh, then frankly, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> that is what I said. And immediately I get a call from like one of the main agent guys and he was like, yeah, this is so crazy. Like, he's like, but you know, there's a lot of people that are looking to you as a leader and parents following you and you should probably delete that tweet. And I was like, thank you for your opinion. I will not be doing that. <laughs> like, I, I will absolutely not be doing that because for me at this point, and then I did one other event with that group and it was right after we were actually in Florida, this poor group. I'm really, this is like my confession. Thanks for being here for this guys. Um, I, we did a leadership conference after all that. Um, and it was really close around that time actually. So it was early 2018 and it was in Florida and it was right after the Parkland shooting. And we, I just remember being in a conference room with a bunch of high schoolers and you could just tell it was like down the road from where we were in this mm -hmm. convention center and nobody was talking about it. And you can just like, I could just feel, I don't even know the word for it. Like the anxiety, the fear, the yeah. stress. And I, but, you know, for better or worse, my parents, like, they were amazing, but they also kind of sometimes lacked boundaries on conversations. And part of that maybe was because of my cancer history from being a kid, having to talk about serious things really early. But that was something that I've always felt, and I still feel that kids deserve to have real conversations. Like, yeah. especially if there is abuse, especially if there is death on the line, like, adults need to be able to be brave enough to have the hard conversations with kids because they deserve that. Like they deserve to know, like if you are being abused, that is wrong. Maybe you should say something like people will be, people are here to protect you. People are here. If they can't protect you, at least we can be uncomfortable and be scared together. And that was just something that that group was like not willing to do. And my just fire inside of who I was, I was like, this is no longer a good fit. 
So um, I had kind of been like looking around. I actually had, <laughs> I had a friend just pretend to be a manager for a while because I was like in limbo and it's just, it's hard to advocate for yourself, but it's so, it feels so much easier to advocate for other people. Right. So like I just had a friend of mine who also had a lot of like similar opinions, kind of felt the same way, like worked with kids. So, um, and we were able to, we were contacted by this production company to do a podcast. And I know that they wanted to elevate more of like minority voices, whatever that means. I mean, I guess I, I hate, I think that's like such a silly word. Cause like, who's a minority at this stage in life, but okay. Um, and it was a really cool opportunity and they really, they let me kind of take creative control on it. And I wanted to be able to tell stories that were real, but also like in, in a way that wasn't always heavy and like, I mean, cause it's just my personality. And yeah, again, you know, yeah. for better or worse, my coping, I think when I was sick, when I was a little kid was just like, our family just deals with scary things with like demented humor. Um, and it makes it more accessible, like in yeah. my opinion. So I think to be able to have lighthearted, fun conversations about hard stuff and to show the parallels of other people's struggles with our own was something really important to me. Mm. And it was a way to show like, you know, disabled people, we're just like you, like, you know, we, our bills come too, but we also have hard things. And, uh, it was a really cool experience to be able yeah. to do that. You know, you, you started off by saying there's nothing wrong with the fact that, you know, all these managers were a bunch of white men. I'd propose that perhaps there is something wrong with that, right? Because then all of the stories that are told come through the perspective of that group of white men, right? Like, the, the, the Larry Nasser example was perfect, yeah. right? Like it takes a group of white men's perspective to say, oh, that sentence was too harsh, yeah. right? Like that is a very particular point of view that is likely not shared by the majority of, of women or non-binary folks um, or, or young athletes. So. I'd propose to say, maybe there is something you're wrong with that, okay. right? Uh, maybe yeah. there is something wrong no, with but that. You're totally right. Cause it's a lot of people, ironically, who haven't had to lack the ability to be able to change their perspective and Precisely. consider and consider someone else's point of view. Precisely. Precisely. And like, God bless you. My, my mom's from Texas, bless their little hearts, <laughs> but you know, like yeah. not helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> not helpful. So. I appreciate your tweet. Keep tweeting. Yes, I, I, yes, I was that. I should pin it. Yes, you should, <laughs> should pin, pin it. it. Um, uh, I want to kind of switch a little bit because you know you're talking about um, these folks kind of resisting what you have to say because it doesn't uh, kind of comport with yeah. what what people want to hear. Um, how do you feel about taking that risk and? Um, do you, what do you think the responsibility is for athletes who have a platform to be the ones who take that risk on? Uh, yeah. How does that sit with you? I, for me, and maybe I learned this a little bit in therapy. I think like as adults, no one makes it this far into life, like without yeah. a little bit of damage. Right. Sure. I mean, and Absolutely. whatever the flavor is, like we all have our own. Yeah pain that we've experienced and for me a lot of it was like 
I was fortunate enough to be around adults that like, for, I don't know, for better or worse, like were forced to have hard conversations with yeah. me. Um, and I had asked that as a kid, like when I was first diagnosed, they were like, well, we can, we can kind of keep this, like we can take care of this or we can tell you everything that's happening. And I remember even as like a nine-year-old, I was like, it's my body. I should probably know what's going on. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't think that like, that was the, I don't know. Like no one knows if like that's the perfect way to deal with it or not. But the thing is, is ignoring hard conversations doesn't make it go away. Like ignoring the scary things does not make it no longer a reality of life. And so again, like along, along my journey of like working with my sports psych and coincidentally, like helping me sort out life things as far as like a therapeutic intervention with him, I kind of like took on this obligation to myself, um, to be, to be somebody that I needed to be somebody that I need. And like, sometimes it was like somebody having a voice saying, this is not right. And I think now like transitioning into the athlete world and being, having really cool opportunities now where I've been able to work alongside, not just Paralympic athletes, but like mainstream non-disabled athletes, NFL, NBA guys, like I've had really, really cool experiences with them. Um, we, we live in a complex world and there's a lot of things that we are doing great at sure but there's a lot of things that need improvement yeah. <laughs> that yeah. greatly need improvement and i think that when you i don't think necessarily like you are obligated to but there is a responsibility when you have a platform and when you have an audience to mm-hmm. do the right thing yeah and to do something that you know is going to elevate people that can't do it for themselves because there's a lot of people that don't have the same platform that don't have the same people listening Um, I don't know. I kind of like go back and forth. Like it would, I would never speak on behalf of like a lot of racial inequity stuff, but I have helped been alongside people as far as advocacy with that. Because like, again, I was, I have an opportunity and I also have a different audience that maybe need to listen to the intersectionality of race and disability. So working together, but also like leveraging what you have to share important messages, I think Mm -hmm. like, and, and really at the end of the day, like we're all affected by each other. And I yeah. think like we've just been sold the story that, you know, we live in a very like individualistic society in the United right. States. So like, you know, we have this idea that it's like, just keep your nose down, keep working, like take care of yourself. And that's not us as a species. Like we are not designed yeah. we are a communal species. And like, you know, one of my favorite quotes that I use all the time in talks is um, we rise by lifting others. And that's like yeah. definitely something that I feel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the other question worth considering is why is it that individual athletes or collectives of athletes are the ones who bear the risk and the responsibility of um, kind of advancing uh, social policy when you know the the billionaires, the owners of the NFLs, the the IOC or um, the IPC, right? Like, yeah. what is their responsibility to do that, right? Like, simply sticking an an end racism sticker on your helmet, that doesn't quite do it. No. Um, so, it, it's worth questioning what is their responsibility. I'm curious if you have a response to yeah. that. Yeah, um, I. <laughs> Plus their little hearts with them little stickers <laughs> and little pink gloves. And stuff. Yeah. I, I like to call that like, you know, performative yeah. action, really performative advocacy. Yeah. Um I guess at the it's so hard because um 
how am I trying to say this? It's very easy to be like, listen to the athletes. And they're like, we're listening. Here's an email. Here's a survey. Right. <laughs> Fill out this survey. Maybe you'll get a gift card at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few industries. Sometimes I guess politics might be one of the only few things that's similar where your labor force is also your product. Yeah. Um, and with athletics, it's crazy because like you run risks all the time as an athlete of like getting cut because of whatever. And especially now we like live in the day and age. I feel like we're transcending cancel culture now. I feel like now people are just so outrageous that like now no one can do anything anymore, depending on where you, of course, like your power stance, where you are. But, um, different athletes definitely have different levels of power within their own like organizing committees. And it's very easy to say, listen to the athletes, but I think really what needs to start happening is we need to have athletes in powers in leadership positions that have experienced not just the sport, because I don't know, it's amazing, it's shocking and amazing how many non-athletes are in charge of athletic like, athletes' though? careers. Yeah. You're just like, do you know how this works? Um, Absolutely. And they're like, no, uh, we don't. But uh, I, I would love to see a lot more athletes and like not just the famous athletes, because again, right. their experience is being of being an athlete and like having the opportunities they have is different from the everyday athlete. I mean, NFL teams, they're huge teams. And we only really like see some of like the bigger name guys like that are the ones doing like commentating and getting jobs after their athletic career. So I think like putting them, putting athletes in leadership positions is really the best way because the listening is not working. I mean, I guess you were listening and not doing anything. So I think, um, and also realizing, I think like athletes forget that they have power and the people, the leadership right now also forgets that like, again, like, we know that we're your product business is business. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, like these are human people. And, um, I mean, I, I don't know. There's been a lot of like different, different sport organizations. Like there's been like some attempted like unionizing in sports that's been shut down pretty quickly, you know, across the board. And I mean, I don't, I don't really know enough. I think about like unions to really speak on that, but I do think there needs to be just stronger collective power. Um, yeah. And again, for athletes to kind of like come together as a community, instead of trying to just do the individualized thing, trying to get the sponsorship, trying to just pay your bills, which of course is like an aspect of humanity, but knowing that we are a part of something greater than ourselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. And you know, certainly that I think there are some, positive movements coming in terms of kind of collective power of athletes. You know, the the athletes at Northwestern Mm -hmm. have unionized. There's some legislation coming out of California that allows Mm -hmm. NCAA athletes to benefit from, for using name and likeness. So I think some of that is coming. And part of me wonders if that collective power is more realized, if more athletes will speak up in open, honest ways uh, about social issues that deeply impact them. Um, so I think we can keep our fingers crossed, right? And, and hopefully we'll get there soon. Uh, I, I want to switch a little bit uh, and, and really learn more about your world as a para-sport athlete. Um, now, as an, as, a, as an able-bodied person myself, this is a world that's new to me. Certainly the last two weeks I've spent tons of time reading, but that's the extent of my knowledge (laughs) yeah so i'm wondering if you can help our listeners understand some of the nuances 
between and within the Parasport community in terms of how are people clustered or classified based on the type of ability they have and what kinds of sports uh, and competitions they can uh, enter and compete in. Uh, I think this will be uh, very useful for our listeners. So first things first. So typically Paralympic sport, I won't go into the history. That's what Google's for. Um, The spirit of Paralympic sport, and it's consistently, it's like, not consistently, it is constantly evolving and changing and expanding, which is good because frankly it needs to. But the idea of Paralympic sport, like when I entered at least, was it was primarily a sporting event for people with physical disabilities. Um, There is a class, just like speaking from track and field, I'll just go down like what I know for track and field. We have a visual impairment class. We have a neurodivergent class. So that's like the newest one. So it's people on the autism spectrum. Um, my thirties is we have muscular, um, coordination or traumatic brain injury that affects certain parts of your body. So like, generally speaking, we're always called the CP class, but it's not just cerebral palsy. It's a variety of things that affect like your coordination. Um, let me see. Those are the thirties, forties. We have short stature, people of short stature. So little people. And then we also have like limb loss, limb difference. So those are the amputee, the blade runners, you know, the very cool, that's me. And mm-hmm. we're the cool ones. Just kidding. Um, at least I think so. Uh, we also have like, and then a variety of like spinal cord injuries. So that, that's like mm-hmm. your wheelchair racing class. And I did visual impairment. That's it. Okay. Yeah. That's like kind of like the very, very generalized, sure. like, version as far as like Paralympic sports offered that like comes and goes actually for each Paralympic and Olympic quad. I'm sure you've seen too, like Olympics, Mm -hmm. like introduces new sports and Paralympics does the same. And so I think like, I can't speak on behalf of like all of the summer and winter sports, but I do know summer offers more than the winter sports. The winter Mm -hmm. sports offers about six or seven different like disciplines. And I think summer sports offers, somewhere around the 20-ish range Mm. and like that's a variety of track and field taekwondo triathlon equestrian bocce which is actually as an italian american i love watching bocce uh judo (laughs) powerlifting goal ball which is really really cool wheelchair fencing um there's just like a variety of sports but a lot of them kind of reflect um the same disciplines that we see in the olympic games and I mean, that's even the prefix of Paralympics. Fun fact is it's meant to be parallel to the Olympics. And I think once again, like I've always said for a long time, disabilities had kind of bad marketing. And so I think for a long time, people thought that Paralympics meant like the paraplegic Olympics and it's meant to be parallel, but you know, small oversight. We're working on a (laughs) rebrand, right? Yeah. So if our listeners don't get anything else out of this, although there's plenty to get out of this conversation, at least that. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And what are, because, you know, best estimates, there's about 1 billion people in our world with disabilities. So do the kind of the classifications and the uh, availability of sports kind of fluctuate based on interest? How, how exactly how exactly does the IPC decide this is what we're going to do uh, this year and these are things we're not going to do? How, yeah. how do they do that? That, I don't know. Like, actually, the actual, like, process. Like, I have heard 
So when I started Parasport, I was doing pole vaulting, and that mm-hmm. is not an event offered in Paralympics. And that's also because I come from a pole vault family. Like, that's not something right. that somebody randomly is like, let me just find a pole vault pit and poles <laughs> flying around. <laughs> um, and so me, you know, me at 21, 22, I was like, I'm going to make this a sport. I'm going to change history. And mm-hmm. um, I have not done that. And now I don't feel that way. But um, what I was told at the time was that you needed to have what was it? Six people from four different countries competing in the same event in the same classification and probably same gender class. So like, it would be like, I would have needed silver pole vault. I would have needed six other women as above the knee amputees or equivalent, um, doing the pole vault. And there's 7 billion people in the world. So you're at first there, you're like, Oh, not that hard. But then when you actually like put the pen to paper, get the paperwork done which like ioc takes a long time ipc takes even longer uh Mm -hmm. like it was just not really in the world of like feasibility um so Mm -hmm. i mean there there's a lot of like things that i think go into it a lot of it is like the field of play like the interest the amount of athletes and again like if they can compete against each other or if you can combine certain classes that are similar enough um Mm -hmm. but it like in my opinion i think that there's a lot uh that's missed from that and i think that disability is so broad that there's still like there's still a lot of classes and a lot of things that are being overlooked and missed and you can't necessarily i don't know like disability also includes but you know that's why we also have like special olympics which is more cognitive and intellectual impairment um because there's just like such a range and i mean if we included every single disability one it would be very hard to have enough people competing because very rarely is one disability created the same and two, like, it would be, like, a two-month-long games. So, like, nobody has yeah. the time or the budget <laughs> to yeah. watch or participate in something like that. Yeah. And I think the, the other thing that I was thinking about as you were kind of thinking, hey, if there's one billion people, it shouldn't be that hard to find six people who are doing pole vaulting. And it made me think, you know, the the obvious kind of privilege that uh, that is attached to the concept of becoming an elite athlete, right? Because the the proportion of people with disabilities isn't reflective of the proportion of uh, people who show up at an IPC event, yeah. right? Yes. So uh, I'm wondering what your reflections are on that. Yeah, I think, again, like me at 21, just unbridled optimism, haven't really had that, that many hardships in life. <laughs> Of course, it's like a naive thought to think that even if I wasn't disabled, that like that enough people have access to adequate sport facilities globally. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite statistics is one in four people in the world have disability. Mm -hmm. And um, I have it somewhere here. It's like about 26% of people in the U.S. identify or are regarded as having a disability Mm -hmm. because in the U.S. we love correct legal language yes, very sexy and exciting right <laughs> and oftentimes like that number could actually be way larger because of something that we had talked about earlier a lot of people don't identify as being right. disabled or they don't know or they don't want people to know mm-hmm. that like they would be considered a person with a disability so that number in and of itself is still kind of like maybe i don't know if nebulous is the right word but you know yeah. we're not yeah. yeah we're not quite sure really what the pure number is but um my biggest fear with paralympics is that it becomes what I call the privilege Olympics. We yeah. start seeing countries like the U S the UK, mm-hmm. Germany, Australia, 
who else? Brazil actually is a really good federation, but like the countries that have access to technology and that have the funding for sport development, for especially for disabled sport development. We're seeing this a lot. I mean, China's also really huge to Russia, but you know, Russia, they have state sponsored yada right. yada. We're not gonna right. get into that. Sure. But these countries that put in the resources for athletes to have this opportunities versus the countries that have athletes, that have people with disabilities, that have the ability, who knows how much untapped talent is happening right now in the world because just purely because of resources, not to mention the stigma of going outside of your house with a disability, depending on what country you live in. If you're a woman, like things are very, very different across the world. So I, I'm not sure. Actually, I am sure that Paralympics is definitely not representative, I think, as far as like the global spectrum of athletes mm -hmm. with disabilities, just because of access. Yeah. So you, you are more likely to see white athletes show up at, at Paralympics? There's definitely more white athletes than there are yeah. any other Yeah, athlete. yeah. Um, and I know, you know, we've talked a little bit um, offline about... Yeah my experiences in Sri Lanka and working with um, kind of these young kids who uh, were victims of, uh, of landmines. And I can tell you, none of them ever thought about the concept of, I want to be an athlete, yeah. even though there were so many of them, right? Because uh, for them, that notion, that, that ability, access was just a non-starter. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think it hurts my heart a little bit that, you know, a global federation uh, still uh, doesn't quite realize the follies of, of their way. Um, well, and for sure, because sport in so many countries, too, is such a luxury. Yeah. There's so many people that are like, I just need to provide for my family and this terrible, tragic traumatic accident happened to me now i have a disability how do i navigate life you know like mm -hmm. only in a country of privilege where you're like we should do sports as a therapeutic or, you yeah. know rehabilitation yeah. and maybe you're good enough to compete at the elite level yeah absolutely and what about the uh, the um kind of the, the gender disparity within para sports is that a thing uh, um, how does that show um, up yeah yeah um and it's also a thing honestly like within like the USOPC side of parasport, like the men's disciplines have a lot more. And I know I remember a coach telling me a while, he's like, well, that's because the men are doing better. And I just remember thinking, listen, I'm not that good at math. I was a Spanish major in undergrad. I'm doing sports like now, but I can count. Like I know basic arithmetic and I'm like, well, of course the men are doing better. They have more options. Like they, they have, yeah. there's more of them. Of course they will do better because there's more of them competing. Um, and Again, I think a lot of that comes down to like certain cultures of like what is available and like what is appropriate for people to be doing sports. Like even in the U.S., we don't see like a lot of Latina athletes competing because like mm -hmm. culturally a lot of like female roles are in the home. A lot of female roles are not yeah. going out and being aggressive, assertive athletes. Um, and so like putting that on a global scale, of course. But I also there's also like the disparity. I'm working on a. IRB approved study right now. And let me tell you, I don't like academia. I don't, I don't, I, you know, it feels good to feel smart about stuff, yeah. but like the formalities of everything is yeah. just like, ugh, I can't roll my eyes hard enough, but I'm doing a lot of interviews on perceptions of disability. And I had a really interesting conversation with one of my participants and they had actually brought up, you know, there's, there's so many different, um, 
sport events available to the like the wheelchair racing athletes. They basically get anywhere from the 100 meter to the marathon as far as mm-hmm. distances they compete in. They have a handful of throwing events, but of course, like of course, they don't have long jump um, or high jump. But uh, for the most part, like they have a really wide variety of things they can do. But other classes, like the 30s class, which is CP, TBI, or like muscular um, muscular stuff, like they really only have a very limited amount. In my class, even I'm a, I'm an above the knee female amputee. I have two events that I can choose from. Hmm. While there are other people, other disabilities, other genders that have like the entire, you know, portfolio of what would be basically available in track and field. So a lot of that also comes from like the Paralympics was originally a wheelchair game. So of course, like they have history, Mm -hmm. they have, you know, there, you know, there's just more that have been doing it longer. They also don't have access to being able to be athletes in the NCAA system for most schools. A lot of amputee athletes do like we see a lot of below the knee amputee athletes that can still qualify make points for ncaa teams i was on a collegiate team like a non-disabled whatever traditional team so i mean it's complex right like what's actually available but it also kind of goes into what are the what are we doing for development and there's a big disparity especially like i've noticed in the u.s like for women's visual impairment classes um we just as a country, we've like kind of relied on the NCAA system. So there's like a handful of pipelines for the wheelchair racers to go through, not many. Mm. Um, so like the ambulatory, the stand up, like amputee athletes, whatever, like we have a little bit more as far as NCAA high school, whatever traditional sports to go through, but developing disabled athletes, like in a more effective way and in a more cohesive and just broader sense, like it doesn't really, it exists. But in my personal opinion, it could be better. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, Lacey, you talked a little bit about the uh, both the representation and the disparity between male and female athletes. Um, but what about the non-traditional gender class, the non-binary folks, the trans folks? Um, how do they show up in your sport world? Yeah, so... Okay, first let me start off by saying I am not an expert in yeah. LG in the LGBTQ arena. I'd like to consider myself, you know, a fan, but I'm not a part of the team, you know, an ally. Yeah. But um, and I feel like I've had like a lot of traffic on my Twitter this way for a long time. I have advocated that there is like a a separate non traditional gender category because again, Paralympics is meant to be parallel to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I think sport should be available to everybody. Mm-hmm. Sport should be made available to every single person. There should be no person that is restricted from doing something that they want to express with their bodies. Um, and um, a lot of people on Twitter don't like that opinion, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is totally fine. But um, again, so with my study, my study is basically interviewing disabled athletes about their perceptions of their disabilities in everyday life and also their perception of their disability and their comparative classes. So a lot of times, if you don't have the numbers that you need in your class, they'll combine you in something similar-ish, but oftentimes certain groups of athletes are at a disadvantage. Like I compete against a bilateral above the knee amputee. So that's somebody mm-hmm. with no legs. And then mm-hmm. we have the single leg amputees like me. But then we also have like very long, what's called a knee disarticulated. Like there's just, again, there's so many nuances. And so across the board, like that immediately makes like Parasport not really fair. It is as equitable as they can possibly make it. And like, there's always improvements that happen and that I hope continue to happen. Um, But I think like the disparity, like sport needs to be available, period. 
that full stop. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing even in the IOC and IAAF, there's a lot of like non-traditional. I'm I don't know all the terms, so forgive me, and help mm-hmm. me. Um, but we see a lot of non-traditional gender athletes that just exist in the world because that's just like how body bodies be bodies, and then just come out the way that they come out. Like, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong, and like with how somebody feels, and sometimes they don't know. Like you wouldn't know the difference. There's a lot of. Um, I think it's called DSD athletes mm-hmm. in um, IAAF that, once again, sh- spoiler alert, in my opinion, I think racism plays a little bit into this because there's yeah. a lot of athletes that come from Africa, from Asian countries who are not born in hospitals like a lot of yeah. Western athletes are born in. And so they just like their bodies are just different and they find sport as a way to elevate themselves mm-hmm. in and out of their communities and then they're penalized for it. And I think that that is wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think that even if they were allowed to at this point compete in a perfect world, that there still is kind of this weird stigma and bias that happens with like non-traditional gender athletes. Um, and so I think like, again, it's like creating transparency, creating context yeah. and just allowing people to compete, but also like understanding perceptions of feeling. I don't, I don't know if there's like enough studies one way or the other way. And this yeah. is also why I'm like academia. Ugh, it's okay, but it's annoying too. You know? <laughs> like, we're like, well, will, will yeah. there ever be enough studies that satisfy even in academic journals? Like, you right. know, depending on who's publishing it, I like, I mean, but at the end of the day, everybody has a right to compete, I think, yeah. and everybody should be able to do mm-hmm. what they want. And, um, you know, if there is perceived um, benefits, whatever the argument is, one way or the other, at this point, perhaps it's irrelevant because sport, right. I don't think, is inherently fair. Yeah. Um, I don't think that having one... And I don't know, again, it's like the argument, like, is it going to push out women's sports is like, is including non-traditional genders, like going to harm women? Right. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. And like, yeah. you never really know until you create opportunities. And I right. think that we, again, ironically, we have binary ways that we think about sports mm-hmm. and binary ways that we think about sport as a business. And I think that we yeah. have the capability to be more creative and yeah. do a better job. Yeah. I think, you know, it, you brought up this really fascinating point about the assumptions of fairness in sports, right? Like, and I think your point is well taken that uh, that concept of fairness is an arbitrary kind of construct. Yeah. Some people think these are the uh, kind of elements of difference that create a cohort of fairness yeah. or, or fair athletes. And I think that is quite arbitrary. Um and you know, um, I, I I will be one of those people who who isn't convinced that there needs to be a separate track for non-binary folks or, 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 or trans people just because we've tried the separate but equal before and that didn't work out yeah. when it came well, to it's race. Not really working out too well for disabled people. Exactly. <laughs> We're never getting paid like that. Exactly. You just can't compete. Yeah. Yeah. So I think. Um, and I think one of the things that you said is that there are all these athletes who are trans who are participating, but if they are um, kind of trans men and there isn't this kind of perceived disadvantage to men, 
then they're fine. They can yeah, compete. Totally. But the other way around, it doesn't work. I know. And the, what's ironic in the argument is you're like, wow, I didn't know there's so many supporters of women's sports all of a sudden. Suddenly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Donate, exactly. Donate, donate. <laughs> Brilliant. Right. So I think that the, the hypocrisy of it is what's problematic. Sure. Yes. Uh, and, um, and, and you're right, you know, the science it hasn't been definitive about what makes the superior athlete, and I don't know I that don't it really matters. Exactly. That, yeah. I don't think there will be an answer, and I don't think the answer is what will make the difference in terms of how we classify sports. Um, and the, the other question, of course, arises then is if we do find a way to create more opportunities uh, across race, across gender, and across kind of classifications of ability for them to enter into the athletics fold, then the next question is how do you globalize that in a way that, like you said, you don't end up with the privileged Olympics yeah. all over again, right? Because it, it's, it becomes both a local and a global imperative, uh, I, I think. I'm, I'm curious, uh, do you foresee a, a pathway where eventually uh, Paralympians, parasports kind of participates with able-bodied athletes? Is it already happening? What's your sense? There is, I don't know. I truly don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because of like laws and rules and people getting mad and all that stuff you know yeah like we are human after all you know oscar pistorius yeah really built us up he quickly tore us down as far as a community yes. but you know he was competing against a, a bunch of the non-disabled guys he went to the olympics mm -hmm. um there have been other disabled athletes that have competed in the olympics but we find nuances to kind of like nitpick at right so yeah. for a while they were saying oscar's legs gave him an advantage and again like iaaf um basically lost that argument based on rhetoric they were mm -hmm. like his feet are powering him and like they are passive devices they are not powering him mm -hmm. if there if there was a if there was an objective advantage everybody would be chopping their legs off and running in the olympics right like right. everybody like i mean i know that's like aggressive but like if that were sure. true we'd be seeing a lot more and like there's a hand there's a lot of bilateral below the knee amputees they did not make it to the olympics so like mm -hmm. oscar was a really good athlete and there's a german long jumper his name is marcus rem he jumps about eight meters 60 he's mm -hmm. like he i think last year or two years ago he was like he had the world lead in both disabled and non-disabled sport but because he jumps off his prosthetic leg iaaf made a rule that you can't compete with non-disabled athletes wow. if you're jumping off your device wow so I think, like, as far as, like, an exhibition event, sure. I would love to see more of a cohesion. And even, like, if we did a point system, um, I wouldn't want to be in charge of that. Because sure. I don't think that, like... But there's... I don't know. Like, I don't think sport is actually inherently fair anymore. I think, you know, we have different body types, different training availability, like, the different equipment availability. So um, I would love to see more cohesion, I think, because we... Yeah. And I... I, I'm sure we are going to talk about this too, is like, there's a big pay gap. There's a big disparity yes. as far as like people even knowing about Parasport. There's people in my own yeah. family that are like, what are you doing? Again? <laughs> They're, yeah. You know, yeah, or they yeah, think yeah. that it's like a hobby and I'm like, Oh man, I wish it was a hobby because <laughs> this yeah. takes up a lot of time. Um, there would just be more transparency and more visibility on something that I think 
is not only in, enjoying, like enjoyable yeah. to watch, like sports is just like, it's, it's made for entertainment, right? but parasport, in my opinion, is important because it shows like the power of, of sport, like in, in a rehabilitative sense and also like in a communal sense, like yeah. Paralympics is weird because it's like business as a sport, but it's also like a social inclusion movement. Like it's trying to do a lot of things and, you know, mm -hmm. like we're nailing it in some places and we're definitely not nailing it in other places. Mm -hmm. But I think that parasport sport in general, you know, like there's this idea whether or not some days I believe it's a lie. Some days I believe it's true that sport is a great unifier. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's sometimes only a unifier to people who have access to it. So right, I think right. if, given the opportunity, it would, it would be able to service that. Yeah. Um, you brought up the, the, the pay equity issue. Um, I think just from my readings the last couple of weeks, there, there is a glaring disparity oh, between oh yeah. what <laughs> a, an able-bodied athlete makes compared to um, a parasport athlete. Um, that I feel is a little bit obvious. I'd love for you to comment on that, but let's also take it further. What about between male athletes who are parasports versus female athletes yeah. who are parasports? And, and obviously the invisible non-binary, uh, non-gender conforming athlete, yeah. right? Um, um, curious, what's your observations? Oh, how do, where do I even begin? Let me see. Um, well, let me start by saying in parasport, the disparity between para male athletes and para female athletes is just the same as the mainstream. Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh but I think a lot of that is also because like there's more like available events for the men to be able to compete in. Like, and it's more, you can't see my quote fingers, but like, you know, people, people say it's more exciting. It's more, they're more powerful athletes. Like whatever that means. You're like, well, you're not intelligent. Well, I shouldn't say that, that you're not intelligent, but it's, it's hard to be like, well, you don't, you don't understand women's sports and perhaps you don't care to understand like what makes women's sports more dynamic or less dynamic or equally dynamic. Um, one of, one thing that's really interesting to me, that's very specific in the Paralympic realm is like what I call like the sexy disabilities and the non-sexy disabilities like mm. again like the muscular impairment class like these are not they're not sexy disabilities they don't photograph well like an amputee athlete uh, like sure. oh, how cool a blade runner you know like even the name blade runner yeah. um that's a sick movie or like the wheelchair athletes like those can look super super cool but somebody with like a significant visual impairment but isn't completely blind Mm -hmm. You know, people are like, what's wrong? What's wrong with them? Why are they doing that? Or like, same thing, like, again, like in the muscle coordination class, you're like, mm, doesn't look that good. Or even like we get combined a lot with people with limb differences. I remember my first ever world team. I think I've spoken to you offline yeah. about it. Um, it was 2013. Right. And that was like a very sobering moment to realize, like I was competing against people my age who had polio which doesn't even exist here. Like, I mean, like that was crazy. And again, it's like, that is a disability that like, isn't exciting. It's not like mm -hmm. the like cool, fun disability to look at. Um, so I think there's a huge disparity as well, as far as like financial availability for athletes who don't have photogenic disabilities, right? Mm -hmm. Like, which is like kind of crazy to think about. Um, we're living in a world where like, there's more available now just due to social media that's a conversation in and of, in and of itself of how, like how and which way and like how many times you 
plan to exploit yourself in right. order to like get money, but you know, like bills are bills. And I, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with an athlete wanting to make money. Mm-hmm. And like the NIL thing with NCAA is like really exciting because I think that actually helps athletes again, that are like the less sexy sports. Right. Like if a, if a collegiate rower isn't going to make an Olympic team, like at least they have something that they've spent their entire lives doing mm-hmm. to monetize at least for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest thing in my opinion, and from my understanding is it really comes down to like anything else, like the industry of sports as it is like a lot of stuff, a lot of the ways that the U S athletes in the NFL, the NBA, the way that they make money is through broadcast. And so like USOPC is making contracts with like all the broadcasting for not just like the Olympics and the Paralympics, but Olympic and Paralympic sports. And then it's up to the broadcast company to decide how they want to spread it out, how they want to make that available to people. And I remember for Tokyo, um, there's like a big email that came out. They're like, we're so excited. Like for the first time ever, they're going to be showing live coverage Mm -hmm. of Paralympics. And you're like, wow, that's great. Tokyo time, however, versus U.S. time is not necessarily a prime time event. So viewership at 3 a.m. is going to be kind of rough for, like, somebody that's just flipping through the channels trying to watch. Plus, also, in 2022, who has normal TV? But I think that that also is creating... I don't know that much about broadcast. I kind of wish that I had done communications or journalism as an undergrad, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't mature enough to think that far ahead at that time. Um... I think that it's forcing these communication companies and these broadcast companies to be more creative and have to find different ways because they're losing money too. So, um, I'm cautiously optimistic that maybe like as certain Paralympians, myself included, get a little older, you know, there's going to perhaps be more opportunities for commentator stuff for like, for, um, having people that can, contextualize disabled sport and make it more accessible to the average viewer. Cause I think right now there's still yeah. people that even if they have good intentions and they want to learn about parasport, even track and field, have you been to a track meet? If you don't understand track, you're like, what is going on? The steeplechase people are jumping into water hurdles and stuff. Yeah. You're like, what is, what in the world is going on? But having somebody who can really kind of in an artful and exciting way, explain the events, explain how the disability affects the events and like why it's exciting. I think, um, that's kind of like my, my impulsive optimism, but for now it's, um, yeah, for now it's not that good. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't help but think about the, uh, I'll just say the the short sightedness of the, the broadcast agencies, right? Like, if they understand that one in four person person in the United States has a disability, there's one billion people around the world who have disabilities. You think that is a market segment you don't get unless you broadcast para sports, yeah. right? So, oftentimes in equity work, we talk about how creating equitable equitable enterprise doesn't have to harm your bottom line. In fact, it can enhance it if you know how to tap into it, right? So I think what you're talking about is the perfect example where, you know, when broadcast agencies realize, oh, we might potentially be able to tap into a 1 billion viewership 
that uh, we aren't currently tapping into, maybe that's the impetus they need yeah. to say, okay, maybe let's not just broadcast it uh, in the U.S. Tokyo time, but instead put it on our streaming platform so that our viewership increases. So Tokyo was, I'm like, before, Tokyo was available to stream. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I've seen better streams, but it was available to stream. <laughs> sure. But I mean, again, it's like, of course... That's a, it's the same argument I feel like that I had with that coach too, where they were like, well, men's sports gets better viewership than women's sports. You're like, of course, because that's what you've made available. Right. <laughs> that's right. just how right. like yeah. time and space works. And I mean, I think the biggest thing, um, there's a really big saying, at least in the disabled community, um, as far as our stories go, nothing about us without us. And I think yeah. that's also why I'm like, I, you know, I'm optimistic that they would get mm -hmm. former athletes to comment, yes. um, who knows though history has a you know not the best track record of them actually doing that but uh but you know there there are disabled stories that have been broadcasted that do get good viewership i've mm -hmm. i've worked i'm working with a couple of like friends that i know that are in like film and tv trying to create and elevate amputee specific stories right because mm -hmm. that's our lane mm -hmm. and this may or may not be politically correct i'm sorry but i was like you know little people really had a moment on tlc there's a there is a variety of all these shows but again to me at least it's like who is yeah. telling the story and what story are they telling so there's yeah. also like a slippery slope that we could be doing where we are telling someone's story for them mm -hmm. versus letting them create their own narrative and actually share yeah, um, yeah. who they are and in, and it goes back to me like when i even started my own sport journey like i've been fortunate enough to be like marginally successful on the social media advertising which is nice it pays yeah. the bills but a lot of that came from like me deciding to just be the person that I needed, I think. Yeah. And then like broadcast companies, sometimes you just miss it because you're trying to anticipate what the, an audience wants. You're trying to anticipate what viewers want to see, what people, what stories they want to hear versus just telling a story because yeah. you yourself are a human person right. you know, right. that needs it. So, you know, it's like letting people who have voices, unique voices, tell the story serves greatly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Lacey, this has been a broad-ranging conversation. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. We did. And I, I just want to say, you know, I hope someday, you know, you're not just kind of commentating, but you're a producer for NBC uh -huh. or something like that where... Uh, call me NBC. I know you have my number Facebook. <laughs> Indeed. Call her NBC. The uh, <laughs> uh, because I, I think uh, you have such nuanced perspectives on what it means to be an athlete and a parasport athlete. And I think, you know, the, I think we all benefit from the person that you've decided you have to be. So thank you so much for this conversation. Um, we really enjoyed having you, uh, to our viewers, um, picked last in gym class. That's Lacey's, uh, podcast. Give her a listen. I, I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us, Lacey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Equity work is difficult work that is worth doing. It is done in community, and it is a responsibility we all carry. I want to thank our guest for today's show, Lacey Henderson, for joining in, and the Equilabs production team. We hope you will join us for our next episode when equity meets business and the bottom line. In this episode, we will talk about equity issues in business and the corporate sector, and we will explore if bottom line thinking is in fact 
incommensurable with equity and justice issues. So join us, will you?